man was vertically challenged. Verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and, I have taken, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false uh, accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to, the, to your house, to this house. Because he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Verse 11. And this is really where the core of my text uh, begins. Now as he heard these things, he spake another parable because he was near Jerusalem. And because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain noble man went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And so he called ten of his servants and delivered to them ten miners, or ten pounds, and said to them, do business till I come. Uh, could you sweep, switch to uh, King James? Sorry. And let's go back to verse uh, 10. It says, uh, go back to maybe verse 11. And as he heard these things, he, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain noble man went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his servants and delivered to them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But the citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. Let's stop here for the sake of time. Because I've already... Uh, this clock is rigged. <laughs> it, it has to be. I haven't spoken for five minutes. Amen. So for the sake of time, so there is a concept in leadership called the delegation of authority. And it's a really a, a situation where somebody is given the authority to act on behalf of somebody else in a temporary capacity because that position is vacant. Uh, I spent a bit, uh, 14 years in government and I learned a little bit about how the U.S. government works. And there's something called in U.S. government called a detail. Sister Shadi, am I speaking? Yes. You, you, go, <laughs> you do a detail. In other words, you're given a responsibility to go serve in a temporary capacity for a period of time because the primary occupant of that position, for some reason, is not available. And so you have a delegation of authority, a detail, to go act in that person's capacity. This parable where, where we've just read is a parable that deals with the delegation of authority. And... To understand the parable, the keys to the parable, you need to understand that there are four elements to the delegation of authority. 
delegation, there's a grant of authority. And this is the power that is given to the person to whom authority is delegated to spend money, to make decisions, and to issue orders that are necessary to get the job done. In the U.S. uh, government, you need a grant of authority to do anything. You need a grant of authority before you can expend one dollar of uh, appropriated funds for whatever program. In fact, the first, quest- the first budgetary entry you make when you're about to expend funds is to record the budgetary authority. It comes down to even an accounting function. You need an authori- uh, a grant of authority to execute any program on behalf of the government. As a matter of fact, you even need a grant of authority to travel on behalf of the U.S. government. It's called a travel order. Because if you don't have a travel order, any expenditures you incur in the, in the, in the midst of that travel is unreimbursable. Amen? So there's a grant of authority. There's, and there's a spiritual dimension to this. Remember when the, Jesus, in Mark 11, Jesus was going to um, Jerusalem. And the Pharisees confronted him. What question did they ask him? He says, by whose authority? By what authority? Are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority to do these things? And when Jesus then commissions the church in Matthew 28, the, the great commission is preceded, preceded by this word. It said, all authority in heaven and in earth is given unto me. Therefore, go. The, the implication, therefore, is that the person that goes as a result of the great commission is going not on their own authority, but on the authority that has been granted to them by the one that gave them the commission. Amen? There's assignment of responsibility, which is the second principle. The duty of the assignee. This is the duty of the assignee to complete the task that is assigned to them. Responsibility without adequate authority leads to discontentment, dissatisfaction, and frustration. If somebody gives you a a job to do and never lets you do it, gives you the authority to do it, That's the most frustrating place to be in. And God is not a God that frustrates us. Responsibility, okay, I've said that. Now, there's the third principle is the receipt or the granting of accountability. And this simply means being answerable for the end result. It includes giving explanations for any variance in actual performance from expectations set. Accountability cannot be delegated and it cannot be escaped. I cannot hold somebody else responsible for that which has been given to me to do. I may say, help me do this, but ultimately accountability rests with me. I'm going somewhere with this. Just bear with me. And then there's the gift of trust. The gift of trust is the inherent confidence of the delegator in the ability of the delegate to get the job done. Trust is implied when delegation is given. So when I delegate a task to you to do, there's an implied trust. There's a belief and a confidence, especially if you have been working with me. I have an implied uh, a gift of trust that I've given to you, that in fact you are able to do this thing that you have, do, uh, that you have been called to do. Now, if, if you break that trust, if you break that trust, then it is hard to earn back. 
then you have to perform to get it back. Now, I'm not talking about the performance-based uh, theology here because with the gift of grace God has given us, remember, God trusts us not because of anything that is inherent in us. God trusts us because of who is, not, is in us. The Bible tells us that Christ in us is our hope of glory. And so if you have been bound by a performance mentality that says, I must do, I must do, I must do, otherwise I can't earn God's trust, you're fighting a battle that you can't win. Because God trusts you inherently because he trusts Jesus inherently. And so in the delegation of authority, there's an implied and inherent trust. All of this is going to start making sense to you because I told you this parable is really a parable about the delegation of authority. And so all of these elements begin to play together when we begin to break down this parable. Authority flows from top to bottom. Responsibility often flows from bottom to top. But accountability is mutual. How many of you here know that God is accountable to us just as we are accountable to him? Is that heresy? Is it heresy? God is accountable to us in the promises and the pledges he has made to us. And we are accountable in the obligations and the duties he has assigned to us. So, basically, the Bible tells us, 1 John 5, 4, that if you ask anything according to my will, God obligates himself to do that which you ask, if you ask according to his will. So, God is accountable to us in that regard. If we learn the will of God and pray to the will of God, God holds himself accountable in that regard. Amen? Amen. When we act in obedience to God's word, we hold him accountable to that which, to which he holds himself accountable, his word. And that is the essence of a covenant relationship. The one with authority often works with the one with responsibility to show that accountability takes place and the work is successfully done. If I continuously deliver for you, you will trust me. So the key to this parable is this. As we begin to, remember a parable is just a story that helps to highlight a principle. So when you hear a parable, you need to be asking yourself, what are the underlying principles that this parable is trying to teach? So this parable essentially is really a story of Jesus. Jesus is talking about himself in metaphors in signs that the discerning ought to understand. He's describing the events of his ministry because he was at a transition point in his ministry. Remember, they were on their way to Jerusalem and this was the advent to all of the stuff that was going to happen. Jesus' mission was about to be fulfilled. So as they were entering Jerusalem, he was really going to Jerusalem because he wasn't going to leave Jerusalem alive. These were the events that preceded the death, the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And so he was telling his, uh, uh, his um, disciples a story. He was doing a health check. Because once those events kicked off, there wouldn't be time to sit down and give lessons. Because things would be fast developing. And so he was essentially doing a health check with his disciples and telling them a story. Why did he need to tell them this story? Because the verse of scripture tells us that they thought the kingdom of God was imminent. Yes. That they thought the kingdom of God would immediately appear. Now, think about this. 
Because what you think determines what you do and how you act. The things you believe inherently drive the actions that you take. And so if these people believed that the kingdom of God was imminent and coming right away, they could as well just sit down, cross their feet, and do nothing. And so Jesus had to set them straight. No, 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 no. You guys have this all wrong. There is work to do. And so subsequent to that conversation, he tells them, no, this is what is going to happen. And he says, occupy till I come. And we'll get to that word occupy. Can I have uh, my water, please? Thank you, sir. Adjust the bottom. He says, occupy till I come. So the key to this parable is this. Look for certain key phrases. When you hear the, uh, the, um, when you hear the word nobleman, that's key for Jesus. So that's the key, okay? When you hear servant, think of yourself. When you hear long journey to a far country, think of the span of time between his ascension and his second coming. When you hear the word kingdom, think of heaven and earth, the new heaven, the new earth, and everything that is therein. And when you hear return, think of the word second coming. The last time I I was here, I talked to you about the seasons of God. I said that God deals with us in times and seasons. And it's important that you understand the time and season. Because if you understand the time and season, you will adequately prepare and position yourself for what God is doing in that season. But if you don't, you may miss what God is doing in that time and season. And so part of what this parable was doing was preparing Jesus' disciples for a transition in time. Remember, Jesus was now getting ready to leave and the Holy Spirit was getting ready to come. When Jesus was born, Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us. But God with us was not God's ultimate plan. God's plan, more perfect plan, was not God with us, but God in us. But for God to be in us, God with us had to evacuate the scene. And so the events that began to happen were necessary events so that God with us would leave the scene and God in us would emerge in the scene. The Holy Spirit will come and inhabit his people. And what's the object lesson for us in this? Sometimes the events in our life become chaotic. We don't understand what's going on. We don't understand what's doing. Our life seems to be full of chaos. Everything is confusing. Everything is discombobulating. You don't understand what's going on. And if you're not careful, if you're not discerning of the season, you may begin to think that God has abandoned you or God has left you or God has removed his hands from you that you're somehow Ichabod. But no, 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 no. As we see in this story, which is what Jesus was beginning to tell his disciples, because you notice that after Jesus was crucified and after he ascended to heaven, there was chaos amongst the disciples. Some of them went back to their lines of work. People were discouraged. In fact, some of them on the road to Emmaus, their savior was with them and they didn't recognize him 
because they were so preoccupied with their pain, with their confusion, and with all the chaos that was around them that they did not discern the presence of their Savior. And so these were the things that Jesus was beginning to prepare them for. And I'm telling you, the presence of chaos in your life does not mean that God has abandoned you. I'm telling you that God may be setting you up for a new season of your life. And that the chaos that precedes that season may be what you're going through. It may be the necessary birth pains. The birth pains that are necessary to birth you into your new destiny. To birth you into your new place. So do not curse them. Embrace them. If they're sin in your life, go to Jesus who has made it right. But then embrace what God is doing. Do not let the enemy use the object of your circumstances, of your adverse situation to beat you up. In Nigeria, we call it adding, it insult, adding insult to injury. Do not let the enemy add insult to your injury. God loves you. God has a perfect plan for you. God is working in your life to bring his perfect plan to you to come to pass. We, the, ways, the ways and means belong to God. And he's not always obligated to show us. But the duty to obey and to respond is ours. Because like a blind man, if we give our hands to God, God navigates us because he's a loving father. He will never lead us into a wall. But when we look like we're walking in the wall, God turns us around. That's why he is God. That's why he's love. God is the perfection of love. I know we've had parents that haven't been the best of parents. We've had leaders in our lives that maybe have used us and abused us. We've had people that have exercised influence over our life negatively. And some of that conditions us to respond incorrectly or inappropriately to the presence of authority in our lives. Some of us build walls around ourselves. Let me tell you what walls do. Walls may keep you in, but they keep the blessings of God out. The same wall you build around yourself to protect yourself may keep you from the blessings that God is bringing to your life. So I don't know who that is for this morning, but I want you to understand that God is moving in the season of your life. You are in a different place, in a different state, and God may be working out something beautiful. Though you may see ashes now, but from ashes, God is able to make a thing of beauty. He will give you beauty for your ashes. So be encouraged this morning, amen? That was free. I'll take up the offering a little Okay, so having laid that foundation, I want to uh, make a few observations about this parable. And the first thing I want to say right off the bat is the last thing the parable says. It says the nobleman was going away to return. I'm sorry, we don't preach this enough. We don't say it enough, but Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Someday, some way, somehow. The heavens are going to burst forth in light. The heavens will split. And Jesus will come riding back in his glorious horse. The trumpet will sound. The Bible tells us the dead in Christ shall rise. And we shall behold him in all of his glory. The question is not, is Jesus coming back? The question is when Jesus is coming back. But the most important question is this. When he comes back, will he find you ready? If Jesus comes back today, are you ready for him to come back? Part of the answer is not that I am saved. Because if you read this parable, there was a sense in which when the nobleman came, he didn't just come back so that he could continue business as usual. He came back and made an accounting, asked all of the servants for an accounting of what they had done in his absence. 
And so, when Jesus comes back, are you ready, are you saved? Question number one. When he comes back, will he find you faithful at the task that he has given you to do? But be in no doubt of the fact that Jesus is coming back. We may not know the time, we may not know when, we may not know how, but we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is coming back. Church, get ready. Amen? Amen. Now, this is not a, a, um, a uh, sermon on eschatology, so I'll just leave it at that. Now, the assignment was, sem- the assignment, number two observation, the assignment was temporary and time-bound. In other words, these folks did not have all the time in the world. I saw, I saw a, uh, a billboard one time. It said, uh, uh, Jesus is coming, everybody look busy. That's... <laughs> That's, that's not what this is talking about here. The assignment was coming. Time was going to run out at some point. So in the light of that fact, they needed to get busy and to get busy quick. Why? Because they had received a responsibility for which an accounting was going to be required and a reckoning will be required. In 1 Corinthians 4, 1 verse 2, verses 1 through 2, the Bible says this, So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. If Jesus comes back today, will he find you faithful? Faithfully doing what? Folks, we have one less day today than we had yesterday to do what God has called us to do. And we will have one less day tomorrow than we have today to do what God has called us. Time is running out. Time is running out. In John verse 9 verse 4, Jesus says this, we must quickly carry out the task assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. So I ask you today, how are you spending the daylight of your life? Are you about your father's work? It's the same mind that was in Christ Jesus is in, in you today. If it's not, God still has room for those that come to him and say, Father, help me. Number three observation, the authority of the nobleman was delegated without reservation. In other words, the servants had the full force and power of the authority of the nobleman. When they spoke, it was as though the nobleman himself was speaking. When they acted, it was as though the nobleman himself was asking. If they wrote a check on the nobleman's account, it was good, beyond a shadow of a doubt. So for all practical purposes, in terms of their authority, there was no daylight between them and the nobleman. By the simple act of delegation, servants immediately became nobility and ordinary people became extraordinary servants by the act of delegation. A policeman, most of you, I don't know you, maybe I have a policeman that lives in my neighborhood. When he's in civilian clothes, I don't pay any attention to him other than the fact that he's my neighbor, right? He's any old uh, Joe Blue citizen. If he gives me an order, I'll probably laugh at him. But once that man puts on that uniform, or once that man flashes that flag, everything changes. Because now he's speaking with an authority 
that is vested upon him by the state. So when he speaks, it is as though the state is speaking. When he acts, he acts under the full force and authority of the state. And I understand that. So when this man says, stand up, I say, how do you want me to stand? Attention or at ease? Because this man is acting with the authority of the state. So how do we know that there was an... Uh, so, uh, I'm sorry. Okay, so... Um, let me kind of be judicious with my time here. Well, okay, in John, uh, 1 John 4, 17, the Bible tells us this. It says, in this world, and this is the NIV translation, uh, it says, in this world we are like Jesus. In Luke 11, Jesus commissioned 72 of his disciples and sent them on a mission. After, and, and it reads from uh, verse 1 to 3 and then 16 to 18. It says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place he was about to visit. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest. And, it's, and verse 3 says, go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. And then you skip to verse 16. It says, it says Jesus says it. It says, whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me and whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me in other words when jesus commissions you and delegates you to work the person that receives you receives jesus in fact they receive the father amen so i wonder how many of us in this room understand that we have a delegation of authority that is a representation of the god of the creation of this universe himself so the Bible tells us this, that a, a, a prince, as long as he remains a child, is no better than a servant. In, that's Proverbs, um, Proverbs 28, verse 16. It says a prince, as long as he remains a child. I'm sorry, that's not Proverbs 28, verse 16. Yeah, maybe Galatians. Uh, can't find my scripture. But anyway, that the Bible says that. I'm not making it up. <laughs> Galatians 4. I think it's Galatians 4. Galatians 4, verse 1 or 2 or thereabouts. Yes. Okay. 4, 6. Amen. So if you don't know the authority that's been given to you, if you don't have the identity of the Father, if you don't recognize that the identity of the Father is with you, you may live like a pauper when you should be a prince. You may act like a servant when you should be making issues, issuing authorities and, and giving charges. Amen? Uh, I, 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 that's, by the way, and when we, when we do marital counseling, when we do marital counseling, we have a series of questions that we ask the prospective couple. A lot of those questions are very invasive, but the questions are geared towards understanding the relationship of this young man and this young woman to authority. Because if they don't have a proper relationship with the authorities figures in their life, they're going to bring that mindset into that marriage and chaos is already sown in at the beginning. Parents, when your daughters and your sons come home and they're fluttering all over with love and I love them, I love them, I love this, I love that. Observe the young men, observe the young women Find out how they relate to authority because that's how they are going to relate to you. This question of authority is critical 
Because it is important how we relate to authority. Because the Bible tells us all authority comes from God. The way we submit and yield to authority is a reflection of our acceptance or submission to God. Amen? Amen. And so, how do we know that there was an expectation of work? Because of the specific language employed in the text. In verse 13, he tells them, occupy till I come. The NKJV says, do business till I come. The DK authorized version says, get busy. Okay? That word occupy or do business is the Greek word pragmatiomai. It's the word from which we get the English word pragmatic. And in every sense of the word, in every sense of its usage, it is translated as a necessary matter. What is pragmatic? Properly, the ancient mercantile term for trading or to make gain, to do business, exchanging, leveraging one thing for another, to make legitimate gain, to bear much fruit. It is the opposite of fruitless, of being fruitless, uh, by refusing to make trades, or by playing it safe. The word means turning something over, making a good trade, to do to good account, to administrate, manage profitably the capital at your disposal. So we know that the specific word that, that is used in this verse of scripture talks about being occupied doing something. Being occupied in some profitable, legitimate act. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, occupy till I come, he didn't expect them to sit down and cross their feet and be happy and celebrating in church, no. I'm sorry, but I have to be that blunt. Because I, I, we're getting to a state in church where most of church happens in church. But God intended for most of church to happen outside of church. Because the locus of worship has moved from Jerusalem. We no longer come to Jerusalem to worship. We go into Judea. We go into Samaria. We go into uh, all of the uttermost ends of the earth. And that's why when we think about ministry activities and ministry programs, if your ministry activity is geared towards bringing to people to church, maybe you need to reconsider it. That's why I am so blessed that this year with Jesus with skin on, we're not doing business as usual. We're taking the church to the street. Instead of asking them to come, we're going to them. I don't know what kind of ministry activities you're involved in, but I am going to encourage you to begin to rethink your ministry activities. Think about how you can take the church to the people instead of bringing the people to church. Because the church is not a building. When we are all gone, the building is empty, but the church is not. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Can I get three minutes back on my clock, please? Okay. So there was an expectation of work. Number five, they were thoroughly equipped and properly provided for, for the assignment. Each one received what the master deemed appropriate for the task that he gave them. So everyone got something and no one got nothing. Everyone got seed capital. So no one could blame a lack of resources for their inability to accomplish. Ephesians 4.7 says, to each one grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Each one means each one. Every one of us, everyone under the sound of my voice, you have a gift. God has given you a gift. The Bible says when he, uh, when he ascended on high, he took captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. And men includes women, by the way. So if you're here today, you have a gift. God has embedded, if you're made in the image of God, the creativity of God is invested in you. The potential of God resides in you. Now, potential energy is not actual energy. Potential energy is energy that's waiting to manifest. But it is still energy. It just hasn't manifested. I'm telling you, everyone sitting here hearing my voice, there is potential energy in you. For some of us, it has manifested and manifested powerfully. But everyone here has the potential to do everything God has assigned you to do. Let me tell you this. When Moses ran away from Pharaoh, he ran to the backwoods of Midian and became a shepherd. And what was the... Look, so I'm saying this to make the point that the fact that you, have recognized, that you haven't recognized your gift doesn't mean you don't have a gift. The lack of recognition is not the absence of gifting. But you must recognize that you're not manifesting your gifting because then you have a basis for going to God and say, God, I know you have given me something. How will this thing be manifested? God, I, God, I want to do what you have called me to do. I want to be obedient. I don't want to be like the slacker servant that took your gift and buried it in the ground because I thought we were an austere man. God, I want to manifest my potential. I want to be that servant that brought a fivefold, a hundred, a two hundredfold increase on the gift that you have given to me. But God, I need to recognize what that gives. That's an honest heart before God. And God loves a heart that is honest, pure, and, uh, and, and, and contrite before him. Amen? Amen. So, um, I was telling a story. I've forgotten what it was. <laughs> that each one of us has a gift. We all have a gift in. So Moses basically had a gift that was in his hand. The thing that Moses used to do all of the miracles that he did was the same thing that was in his hand. But when his eyes opened to the call of God in his life, the rod of Moses became the rod of God. But that rod was, had always been in his hands. How about Joseph? Joseph was born a dreamer. A dreamer, he got the ability to interpret dreams. And he, 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 he would have imagined when, because his dreams got him into trouble, basically, right? But it was those same dream, the gifting of dreams that opened the, the, the doors to the kingdom for David. That is what promoted him to the uh, prime minister of Egypt, right? Yes. But it was the gift that was inherent in him. I want to tell you there's a gift that is inherent in you. The, the, the degree to which you submit yourself to God is the degree to which that potential will begin to manifest. Joseph submitted himself to God, and God used that gifting that was in him to take him to the top of government. Moses submitted himself to God, and God used that gifting that was in him to take him to the top of the mountain. God is no respecter of persons. If you submit yourself to God, understanding that there's a gift in you, God is going to use that same gifting to take you to the top of the mountain. But will you submit? Will you submit? Because we're also consumed and concerned with our own agenda. Remember again that these servants were not consumed with their own agenda. They had no other agenda but the agenda of the master. 
because it was the master that put them to work. Their accountability was to the master. Their profits were to the master. Their work was to the master. If the master said breathe, they would breathe. Everything they did was all about the master, except that one person. I hope there's no person that's sitting in this room this day that will be that one person. But I want to tell you, the key point here is this. There is a gifting in you. God has given you a gift. Submit yourselves then to God and he will lift you up. Amen? Oh, by the way, because all of our giftings are from God, it becomes foolish for us to compare giftings to giftings. I may not be able to preach like Pastor Bank and preach uh, down a storm. I may not sing as melodiously as Brother Deola. I may not dance like Margaret Thatcher, okay? <laughs> That's an inside joke. Come to me, I'll tell you after. But let me tell you what none of those people can do. None of those people can speak Hebrew like me. And so I can use my language to minister to an evil man in the way that pastor or, or, uh, or Brother Deola or Margaret Thatcher cannot. I have a connection on the basis of the gift of language to be able to do some work that God has called me. So if I'm comparing myself based on the things that I don't lack, then I don't recognize the things that are inherent in me. That's why the Bible says the fools compare themselves to themselves. God has uniquely called you. He has uniquely equipped you. And he has uniquely provided for your success. Don't look around at what people... Just be faithful to your own calling. God is not going to assess your performance based on somebody else's calling or gifting. God is going to assess you based on your task and your gifting and your grace. Amen? Amen. All right. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to make this uh, one point. There was an expectation of creativity. In other words, while the nobleman gave the vision, the charge to occupy and made provision for it, the means to get the work done, the work, the text does not tell us. He gave them a charge. He gave them the provision to do the work, but he didn't tell them how to do the work. He didn't say, okay, you need to do this. He didn't give them a step-by-step guide on how to do the work. And so God, God was expecting their participation in the process. God was expecting them to put their specific creativity to work. And I'm telling you this. Even the, the, the servant that buried his money in the ground. Think about what the, uh, Jesus said to him. The noble man. In essence, what Jesus is saying to those of us that refuse to deploy our gifts. Because again, remember the keys to the parable. When we say noble man, we're talking about Jesus. When we talk servant, we're talking about us. What Jesus was saying in essence, uh, the, the noble man was saying to the said, I've taken my money and put it in the bank. That's the minimum you could have done. And what does that mean for us in the church? Well, maybe going to the nations, going to the jungles of Africa is too risky for you. Maybe preaching in your neighborhood and your community is a little too uh, risky for you. It puts you out of your comfort zone. 
taking your gifts and your talents to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the othermost ends of the world is a little too risky for you. But is praying for those that are going a risky proposition? Can you not pray? Can you not give? Can you not support? Isn't that the minimum that you can do? That's great. Even though God expects more, he said, the least you could have done, the minimum you can do, the minimum any of us can do is to plug into our church ministry. How many of us are actively, actively serving in this house? What area of ministry are you uh, serving and occupying in? Amen? I see I've run out of time. But let me close by saying this. What does it mean to occupy? When you look at the lives of the first century believers, you know what it means to occupy. Many left Jerusalem, the Middle East, and journeyed to Africa, to Asia, to Europe, abandoning all for the sake of the call. And remember, they did, did so without the benefits of the means of transportation that we have today. Many did so at great peril to themselves. Many were murdered, many were crucified, many were fed to lions or set ablaze and used as street lights. All were persecuted, but all remained faithful to the call. You and I sitting in the room today are the result of the ministry of 12 that became 120, that became several billion. How did the generations after them perform? According to facts.org, no single group in human history has contributed more to education than Christians have. No group in human history has contributed more to healthcare than Christians have. Christians, more than anyone else, have contributed to the welfare and protection of children. No other group in human history has fought the slave trade more than Christians have. No other single group in human history have contributed to the cost of, of charity more than Christians. Were they in government? It was Christians moved by the notion that all men are created in the, equal of, in the image of God came to a nation to establish a nation that was based on religious freedom, a nation that you and I live in today. The church is the greatest provider of healthcare and education in the world, working especially in the poorest, some of the poorest countries where there is no other care. I don't know how many people here are the result of education by some ministry organization at some level. Missionary schools, primary schools, missionaries, most of us in this room, if you are, I, I dare to say if you're from Africa, perhaps you're the recipient of some missionary-based education, whether it's Catholic, Anglican, Methodist, or Baptist. All of the Ivy League schools in this exception, in this school nation, with the exception of Cornell, were founded by Christian denominations. Harvard and Yale and Dartmouth were founded by Congregationalists, Princeton by Presbyterians, Columbia by Anglicans and Episcopalians, Brown University by Baptists, University of Pennsylvania by Anglican and Episcopalians and Methodists. As a matter of fact, let me read for you from um, the, uh, the Charter of Harvard. And this was what the, those that, that founded Harvard said. He said, after God carried us safe to New England and we, have bu and we had builded our houses, provided necessaries for our livelihood, read convenient places for God's worship, and settled the civil government, one of the next things we longed for and looked for after was the advanced, advanced learning and was to advance learning and to perpetuate it to posterity, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches. 
when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. Harvard was established to raise pastors for the next generation. Emory University, Emory Hospital. Emory, Mercer is Baptist, Emory was Methodist. Amen? Talk about science. Can I take three of my minutes back now? <laughs> Talk about science. Let me read you this quote. But science can only be created by those who are thoroughly imbued with the aspiration toward truth and understanding. The source of feeling, however, springs from the sphere of religion. The situation may be expressed by an image. Science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. That was Albert Einstein. The church has pioneered all kinds of social work. Talk about William Carey, who spent his life and died in India, taking the gospel. Talk about a lady called Angie Gonshi Boshahu, an Albanian Indian woman who answered the call of God at the young age of 18 and went to Calcutta, India, and died at the ripe old age of 87, working with lepers and outcasts and widows. You may know her as Mother Teresa. How about Mary Mitchell Slessor, a Scottish Presbyterian missionary to Nigeria who lived and died in Nigeria. She was able to spread Christianity while promoting women's rights and protecting David's children. She's most famous for having stopped the common practice of infanticide of twins in Southeast Nigeria. Okay, children, close your ears. My girlfriend, when I was in Nsuka, lived in Mary Slessor Hall. <laughs> I can talk about William Wilberforce, but even if that's too far out for you, how about back home here? Uh, most of you don't know this, but my first encounter with Pastor Bank was not in this church. I remember the story of Pastor Bank. Pastor Bank picked up his family, and he tells the story. I don't know the last time he told it. Picked up his family and moved everybody to Ibadan with mosquitoes and flies and the heat. Why? Because he wanted to establish a missions training agency that was responsible for training missionaries that are now working in West Africa. And prior to that, Pastor Bank had an itinerant, itinerant missions training um, ministry where he went from church to church to church preparing the local church for missions training. Brother Enefiok, you went there when you came to Christ uh, Fellowship. But he came, I don't know if you remember when you came to Christ Fellowship. Uh, Pastor Chuck Strong, yeah. <laughs> but that was my encounter with, with Pastor Chuck. And that was Lord launched me into my destiny. So what am I saying? We've talked about William Wilberforce. We've talked about Mary Schlesser. We've talked about Pastor Bank. How about you? When your own history is written, what will your epithets say? That you marked time in church or that you left your imprint in the sands of time? May our generation be the generation of those that will answer the call and, and, and leave our imprint in the sands of time. Amen? Amen. God bless you. told you he was a pope. <laughs> Praise God.